1: Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc.
2: Welcome to Recode Video, Peter Kafka. That is me. And in a few minutes, I'll be talking to Al Madrigal, uh, who you have seen on TV somewhere doing something. Most likely his long run on The Daily Show with Jon Stewart. But he's done a lot of TV, a lot of comedy. He's got his own Showtime special. He also... Remain to this conversation, runs his own podcast company, which I imagine he's going to sell sooner or later. And kudos to Al for giving me some some candor about that. We always like candor on this show. First, though, I want to touch on some news. You guys have been paying attention a little bit, I think, to the fight between Google and Facebook in Australia, which has relevance to Google and Facebook and the rest of the world. So we want to talk to Sarah Morrison, who's been covering that story for Recode and Vox joined by my colleague, Sarah Morrison, who's excellent. She works with me at Recode and Fox.com. Sarah, can you explain to us who won the fight between Facebook and the Australian government?
3: Um, I, I can't because it depends who you who you ask, right? That's like, the correct answer. <laughs> okay, thank you. Uh, I mean, obviously, Facebook says it won and the Australian government says uh, it won. Uh, and is so, it really
2: yeah. a fight between Facebook and the government or as Folks at Facebook would argue a fight between Facebook and Rupert Murdoch?
3: Um, I mean, Rupert Murdoch certainly plays into it. This is a thing he, he really wanted his publications to get paid. He's wanted that for a long time. He has a lot of influence in Australia and probably on the government. So, safe to say he pushed for this. Safe to say his organizations are, are being paid off. They've already made a deal with Google, they'll probably make one with Facebook. So he's probably one here.
2: So let's let's zoom out again. Um, sure. For people who who may not have been following every twist and turn, um, the general backstory is that the Australian government has been pushing this plan to get um, really Google and Facebook to um, pay various publications in Australia for for use of their content. That's the big general idea. Um, and for many months, Google and Facebook have been saying we don't like this law, and and uh, if Bush comes to shove, maybe we'll have to leave Australia. And then last week, both Google and Facebook reached two different decisions. You want to explain what happened last week?
3: Yeah. So basically, Google said we we've made uh, deals with a couple uh, Australian publishers. Uh, so obviously, we're we're gonna play ball here. If they make those deals, they can avoid like having to make those deals and being forced to to pay. And then Facebook said. By, <laughs> they just sort of cut off all of the links entirely. they They did what they said they were going to do. They pulled out.
2: yeah, explain what 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 saying by meant for at least a few days uh, last week and this week.
3: Uh, I think Australians woke up and found that that they are could not share any news links at all, Australian or international. The Australian news publications there. Content was just wiped out, and so
2: th- just to be clear, this was um, if you were an Australian publication, you couldn't post a link. But what would have happened if a user posted a link to um, news in Australia or a news organization outside of Australia?
3: You got a little uh, prompt that said you you couldn't. <laughs> so <laughs> you
2: literally can't. You literally can't put this link into Facebook.
3: Yep. Yeah.
2: And and Facebook's argument here was what.
3: Uh, that they didn't think that the law, like, understood, uh, how news worked on Facebook. You know, people choose to put links on Facebook. Why should Facebook have to pay for something? that benefits, you know, the news publishers. and that right.
2: so, she, so, Yeah. so to explain the, right, Facebook's interpretation of the law was we're going to be penalized literally for posting links to content, not just, we're not talking about taking a headline or an excerpt. We're talking about literally posting a link, you know, something people do all over the internet and, and, yeah. and on sites like Facebook. Right. Um, and, and we can't tolerate that. So we're going to just show you what it looks like without that.
3: Yeah, we we don't even need news that much anyway, so uh, we, we, we're we not going to be bothered.
2: Um, and then, then, then there were a series of stories and tweets and posts about things that weren't news that were also censored. Facebook says that was an accident mostly, and, and we fixed it. I think other folks think they were trying to show a message there about how sort of draconian this could be. Um, and then earlier this week, Facebook said, actually, we worked out a deal with the Australian government. So what's the state of play today? Uh,
3: yeah, so basically... Facebook and the government sort of, they say they worked out a deal. They just, they added a couple amendments to the law that Facebook's found palatable. So it's going to play ball and it's basically making the same deals that that Google made last week. So well, what yeah.
2: what is the distinction? So what did Facebook say that it's getting now that it wasn't getting five or six days ago?
3: Uh, it seems like um, well, probably a little more power. Like it can make uh, deals outside of the law and therefore not have to make them, um, not have to be forced to make them not have to go in front of an arbiter if, you know, they can't agree to something with the media. If they, yeah.
2: The, the big issue that I'd heard was they don't want to be sort of forced into this arbitration. Right. Where if they can't reach a deal with Rupert Murdoch or any other publisher, that, that that an Australian government arbitrator is going to set, uh, set some sort of rule. Um, yeah. And it seems like that was the issue. Um, yeah. it, because Google had done this without the arbitration and they're paying tens of millions of dollars, maybe more than a hundred million dollars. Obviously, that's not financially material to either Facebook or Google. Do you think the big issue for Facebook and Google here is the specifics of the Australian law and the specifics of the Australian media market or precedent and what might happen in other countries around the world?
3: Uh, Well, both. I think the the other countries that are already, you know, saying they're going to make similar laws. They're already in the process of doing that. I know that the prime minister kept saying, uh, of Australia, kept saying, well, I'm talking to Canada actually right now, and they're very interested. Uh, Obviously, it's in Facebook and Google's best interest to have as few of these laws uh, out there uh, around the world as possible. So I think they want to sort of play this game right so they don't have to keep uh, doing it.
2: Well, yeah, I mean, I think what they would like, they're saying, is we want to cut these deals country by country. We just don't want to negotiate with each publisher and whatever publisher we want. And if we don't want to negotiate with a publisher, that's up to us too. And that's what we've done in the United States, right? Uh, by the way, um, when they announced their deal to, to start paying publishers for their news tab, was it last year or the year before? It's all a flat circle. Um, it was at an event hosted by Rupert Murdoch's News Corp. It was Mark Zuckerberg and Robert Thompson who runs a News Corp on stage together. It was very clearly a deal that that Murdoch had pushed for uh, and seemed happy to get from Facebook uh, in the US. Sounds like they're doing the same thing in the UK. What we don't know is whether the model we're going to see in each country is going to be sort of the American model, where Facebook gets to set private deals with companies it wants to, or an Australian model where it's pushed and prodded by specific government regulation.
3: Yeah, well, and even if in the Australian model, as we're seeing, it's still found a way to make the deals it wants to make pretty much the way it wants to make them. Uh, the Australian law gives it much more of an incentive to do that, but it's it's going to do that like. Facebook for years has been rolling out different, here, we're going to pay the news, don't be mad at us, uh, sort of initiatives. I don't think any of them have worked out super well yet.
2: It's it's kind of interesting, really. It's not very long ago that if you asked a Facebook employee whether they should be paying publishers for news, they would look at you like you had horns growing out of your head. Um and Google, by the way, would make the same argument. So, well, we're we're just, you know, we're some version of the internet and or we're sending you traffic and that should be enough. Um, and they pivoted pretty quickly and fairly recently the idea of saying, all right, here, you get a few million dollars, you get a few million dollars, you get a little less. We know you'd like more, but what are you gonna do? And that's a pretty significant shift. Uh, I mean, it's, again, it's very small money for Google and Facebook, um, but philosophically they've gone from, we're not gonna give you a dime to we're gonna give you several dimes.
3: Yeah, or we'll give you several dimes now so that somebody doesn't make us give you several dollars.
2: Well put. Um, Sarah's been writing about this a lot. You can read all of her coverage over at recode.net. Thanks, Sarah. Thank you. Thanks, Sarah. We'll be getting to Al Madrigal in a minute, but first we wanna hear from some of our fine sponsors.
0: Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.
1: Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO, Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor. What's a mistake they made that changed their approach? And how do they find their next great idea? subscribe wherever you get your podcasts published by american funds distributors inc
2: i'm delighted to talk to al madrigal who i've been listening to and watching to in some form for a decade maybe you guys have seen him on tv probably listen to my podcast he's gonna be in a marvel movie later this year hi Al. <laughs> how are you i'm good thanks for for making time you seem like a very very busy guy
4: um, there's a lot of stuff going on. I, 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 like staying busy, you know, um, my business partner, it would make fun of me. Um, I'm the guy who jumps in the car and gets right on the phone because I have to, um, uh, because I am so busy. And then, um, yeah, Bill Burr, who I started all things comedy with, he's like, um, Yep, you can't be alone with the silence. <laughs> like uh, you can't just—you got to be talking to people at all times.
2: Well, that makes you a perfect podcast guest. So thank you. Yes, and you—you you have your own production company with Bill Burr. We'll talk about that. I do want to just start off with—it's recording this in late February. It looks like there's a light in the end of the pandemic tunnel, but I'm just curious what a performer like yourself has been doing during lockdown for a year when you probably couldn't go on stage. I'm assuming you probably didn't travel to clubs. I'm assuming you probably weren't shooting any sitcoms. You tell me.
4: I was lucky enough to stop going to clubs, um, I should have made a conscious choice to end my club career because I didn't like I just was horrible at managing drunks. You know, comic comedians do really well when um, people are out to see them. And this is a Doug Stanhope line. But when people are just showing up to see comedy. Mm hmm. That's where it gets ugly. Um, so I had about, you know, I was I was doing well post-daily show, which was selling out theaters, and it was fun. I was on the road with John Hodgman having the time of my life. And then, you know, when you're going out on the road and, you know, 50% or 60 or 70% of the people are there to see you. And 30% of the people just are there to see comedy. It's it uh-huh. just, it's not something I'm into. So, and then I also have older kids. So I was totally, I think D.L. Hewley uh, told me that he did not watch his children grow up because he was on the road. And I had kids that are teenagers and I wanted to hang out with them. So I just gave up on the road. I don't miss it. You took
2: yourself off the road before the virus did.
4: Well before. Yeah. And so and then in terms of being busy, I I just, um, you know, I had just finished working on a CBS show that I was a writer on and and, uh, lucky enough to be a producer on and then be an actor on. So I was just sort of learning how to really make TV there and then sold a couple TV shows. So I've been busy this entire pandemic writing two television shows.
2: So you can write at home. Um, Productions has been more or less halted. I think that started back up, though.
4: Yeah, I'm on a uh, I'm actually on a Apple Plus show with Rose Byrne and Rory Scoville called Physical um, uh, about the the golden age of VHS tapes and how. um, Oh, like Olivia and john Physical? Yes, that's right. Excellent. Inspired by sort of Jane Fonda and mm-hmm. all of the, you know, like the Olsen twins and and all of their money came from just selling VHS tapes. That was, you know, the Richard Simmons uh, mm-hmm. was sweating to the oldies.
2: Jazzercise. And, uh,
4: <laughs> totally. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I'm on that show. I'm a recurring on that. But I've, I've shot. I flew to Tulsa and shot a, a movie with Matt Walsh and Eva Longoria during the scariest part of that was a connecting flight to Tulsa, Oklahoma. Um, but uh, st- I, I think productions have COVID pretty well figured out. Obviously, I think most of your listeners have probably heard the Tom Cruise rant. But yep. as, as long as everybody's keeping it safe, um, you know, I, I think they can go on. They stripped all the fun out of it. I used to hang out and have lunch in the makeup trailer and hang out and have a drink with the prop guys afterwards. And that's so good. now
2: what now what now is it? does a day on set look like now?
4: It's different groups of people. So you go in. And everyone is just triple masked with face shields and um, they've divided an entire production into zones. So everybody that's on stage with the actors would be like, so just a zone A and then there's zone B and zone C. So the zone C and zone B people come in and get everything set. Zone A then comes in and does the shooting and the work. And then you spend time, like I said, makeup trailer is, is, was the be- you know most fun that you could have on set because there's Mm -hmm. music playing there's people in and out and um now it it looks like something from contagion you know it's it's uh it's all just everyone's wrapped up and um it's scary so you've
2: been able to work like a lot of us are sort of at home like i'm doing now kind of kind of wistfully pining for the office or for you know being able to meet people for coffee so you have some of that and then so so you're working, but it's not normal. And then normal comes back. When do you think fall winter? I mean, we're all guessing you're, you're not Tony Fauci. I didn't have you on for that, but what's your sense of, sort no, of no, no, when your work I, you life know, comes I, back?
4: I think, you know, me and my wife were just talking about this morning. I think LA numbers have gone way down, um, to the point where like, you know, we have kids in sports and so they're you know, high school sports are think are coming back and there's a road to that. Um, and so I think. Um, I, I've been saying August um and in the fall you know we have got everybody back in school I think I'll personally I'm I, I'll always be a mask guy in the supermarket and uh i think uh i when i go to a big public place i am a a big sports fan and so if i go to a basketball game or a football game i can't see myself not rocking a neck gator uh or something around um
2: that'll be really weird because i think i think there'll be a bunch of people like you who are gonna be permanent maskers and then a bunch of people sort of like situational maskers and like they'll carry one around and, and maybe like depending on who they're around, and what their vibe is, like maybe I should mask up. Of course, it'll be too late at that point.
4: That's <laughs> the sort of funniest part about it. When I'm out on a walk, I live in sort of a, a little bit of an isolated area and you'll rarely encounter people. And you're almost like you put on the mask when people walk by. But it just seems like a little bit of a diss. You know, <laughs> like you're like, <laughs> oh, you look COVID-y. Ugh, I, don't I I put it on to
2: make people feel better about me i think is the idea i'm trying yeah, to make I'm them less right oh,
4: there's a little bit of judginess that yeah you, it seems like your perceived judginess when you're like oh i'm looking a little covety over there i will pop that on so yeah yeah it depends I'll on what part of rocking. brooklyn you're
2: in like you can you can depending on the neighborhood you're in it's more or less uh uh masky so if you go into park slope they will definitely give you a stink eye if you do not you're not double or triple masked
4: i lived in park Slope for a bit yeah it was uh i totally get that it was uh i can tell yeah it's yes um so
2: you started in comedy late um which is interesting late yeah late 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 in your life yeah
4: Yeah. And for a comic, I mean, you know, big picture, not that late in life. But um, for a comedian, you know, typically people sort of start out of high school or, you know, Dave Chappelle started when he was 15 or 14 in Baltimore. And some of the great comics start super young. I started at 28, always wanted to be a stand up and then just got sort of. Sucked into the complacency of his family business, so we ran an HR company. Uh, pro- it was it we're a professional employment uh, company. We employ people to still exist to this day in the San Francisco Bay Area. Employ people to work at other people's businesses. So you don't have the responsibility. If it was through Vox, we'd employ every single person from yep. the president down to the file clerk, and. Um, then where you outsource your hr department so i was miserable doing that and then started doing stand-up and it sort of took off right away and
2: so so you knew you wanted to do it but weren't doing it um what was the thing that got you sort of
4: over the edge at 28 like all right i'm gonna go on stage at 26 i went to an open mic and to watch a friend and everyone was horrible and I remember thinking I if this is the bar I'll just I'll start and then one of my brother's little brother's friends started really cracking up at me laughing. And I didn't, I wasn't saying anything. I was just, I look like this and you can't see, but it just, you know, I, I look funny. And, um, he was just like, now if I just matched up some great stories and some jokes with this, all this funny looking face, I'm in business. So I, um, yeah, I finally sucked it up and went to my first open mic in San Francisco, the luggage store with Tony sparks. And I remember. Uh, and i rarely admit this but i'll tell you I, I shook his um hand right when i walked in business style and go hi al madrigal how you doing i'm going to be famous you did that and um yeah i did that i i i cringe every time i hear it but uh, and say it uh, but i uh, i did it yeah and i um
2: uh, did you think you had a fa- the family business to go back to was that was that the fail safe if it didn't work if you didn't become famous well, i i
4: did I, I didn't I didn't know I, I didn't know what that meant and I d- I didn't know what I was talking about. I just wanted to be a stand-up comic and I didn't know anything about the business side of it. Uh, I really didn't. So I just assumed that I would work at my parents' family business and I would do stand-up comedy because I love stand-up comedy and that was, that was the plan at that point. So I think we're close to the same age so that you would
2: have got on what late 90s? Is that when you sort of were starting? chronologically yeah exactly so
4: 1998 was uh, the, the year it so, was uh, it was may 1st tuesday may 1st 1998 i believe so there'd been a big comedy boom
2: that was kind of tailing off but it was still the era where if you were successful in comedy you got a sitcom you got a holding deal yeah, was I, that was that what you thought you were doing because there was also an alt comedy did. scene
4: going no didn't even know anything about the deals or anything Again, just yeah. wanted to go make on stage people laugh in an audience and that was it that was, who was your was who, were, who was your who was your role model who did you want to be I saw Patton Oswalt who I still think is one of the great comics Mark Maron we were just talking about before we got on um I would see Arch Barker Um, I'm not sure if you know Orange Barker, but I remember, oh my God, he moved to Australia and became this, we were the exact same age, but he started when he was 18. And I remember walking into the San Francisco punchline and seeing him on a Sunday night showcase. And it was like, okay, that's the bar. Okay. like That's how good we have to get. So San Francisco was a great place to start because on... Friday and Saturday night, we called them the KMEL crowd, which was like a hip hop radio station in the Bay Area. Mm -hmm. And so you had to be smart and able to control a rowdy audience and have jokes and punchlines to go with the smart material. There was there was a really high bar with the comedians that sort of came before you. And then the the San Francisco punchline, uh, the people that ran it, Jeff Wills, who's now the VP of, of comedy for Live Nation and Molly Schmink and Jimmy Cornett just didn't tolerate hacks so you were just there was a high bar there and how long into it do you go from this seems like something
2: I want to do and I'm going to be famous too oh actually I know what I'm doing I didn't realize how much I needed to know but now I've I've kind of figured it out is that years It's it's
4: it's a long haul. That's why with people who just want to be straight standups, it takes a long time to have your point of view and know exactly who you are. And I'd say even moving to L.A., I had no idea who I was as a comic. I think it takes you a good and there's a great book called Comic Insights by Franklin Ajay that he taught at UCLA and it has some interviews in there with Alan and Chris Rock and Jay Leno. And Jay Leno says it, it's the same as being a lawyer. It takes you seven years to get your law degree and then another seven years to become a good lawyer. So I, I think it's the same. Um, it takes you a good 10 years. And so
2: I became aware of you, I'm trying to think of the chronology, I think, because I heard, we were talking about this, uh, you used to go on Mark Maron's show, you were his neighbor. Uh, and that was a long time ago. And then I think after that, like after you'd been doing those, you went on The Daily Show. Do I have that right? Or was it, were you doing Daily <laughs> yeah. Show before Maren?
4: It was just, no, I think I was, I became friends with Mark um, pre- WTF, you know, and yeah. and um, you know he would always come over between girlfriends, and uh, you know, like I got some screeners, and then, uh, we'd hang out, and we I think we drove to a gig together, and it's like two thousand five, two thousand six, and so you know, well before Daily Show. Daily Show came in two thousand eleven.
2: So I'm assuming that that pops you onto national consciousness and that that's where, like, people on the street recognize you from being on TV.
4: Yeah, especially in Park Slope. We were talking about Brooklyn. Yeah. Like, you're walking down the street. I remember people pressed up against the window. Wyatt Sanak, who's uh, still a very good friend of mine, um, would tell me, he's like, man, you're living in Daily Show Central. Um, so it just depended where you were. You know, Minneapolis, you know, there's sort of those, those cities you'd go to where you'd really get recognized. But, you know, prior to Daily Show, I was in a bunch of sitcoms. I was in, you know, I, I, I got my own show in 2003 with Cheech from Cheech and Chong, mm-hmm. and that didn't go. And then, you know, wrote a bunch of shows and tried to develop the Al Madrigal show for years and went on the road for years. It was just sort of hustling as a stand-up comic and uh, actor.
2: So what what was it like to then get sort of that Daily Show pop? Or, may, or, or are you saying you kind of, it wasn't as much of a pop as, as I thought it was? Because I, I, at least in my world, right, if you're on the Daily Show with Jon Stewart in that era, everyone's paying attention. Even if they don't know your name, they have seen you do bits.
4: Oh, no, I remember being at the Emmys and looking at walking by Bryan Cranston and his wife. And Bryan Cranston goes, look, there he is. Like, and I was like, "What is happening to this? Is insane!" Like, and we'd go to you know, going to those uh, DNC and RNC with uh, those conventions in 2012, walking down the street with John Oliver and Jason Jones and Sam B. It's like it was like rock star status. It was like nothing I ever imagined could happen. So it was it was super cool. And then. Just you, you think about all of the people from that show that have gone on to other things. You sort of you can put people in different categories, and I sort of align with the um the Rob Cordry, Nate Cordry, you know, the the Ed Helms actor bunch, you know, mm-hmm. and and um, but everyone's gone on to sort of carve out the career that they have wanted, I guess. I don't, like, I don't, every single I'm sorry, I was interrupting you, which is bad. This
2: is the one problem with this is the one of the many problems with doing podcasts via via Zoom or Squadcast. Is, is yeah, uh, I, just, I feel I'm much so more comfortable. I, I I have I'm much more comfortable interrupting you in person, and that's the problem on, on, online. Yeah,
4: well, I, I'm also just so uh, chatty that I'll just keep jamming through. You know, I have stories to go along with everything, but I think like it's um, everyone on. You know, it's it's at Saturday Night Live, sort of. Um, Dreammaker you know factory that John set up everybody um, you know has gone on to do great things
2: what do you think about that format the the satirical news show which existed before but he you know blew it up and then everyone has a version of it uh, John Oliver is back on the air right now everyone was pining for John Stewart during the Trump era sort of his absence it was felt you could almost feel it. Do you think that format still sort of is going to be a dominant format for a comedy in the years to come, yeah, or is it get replaced with TikToks and thirty second?
4: Ephemera? No, I think for, there'll uh, there'll always be those shows. You'll always have you know you'll always have late night talk shows, and, and how people consume them will become you know they'll be watching the chunks which they are now on youtube the next day you know you look at seth myers or jimmy fallon or you know, the, the jimmies and their their views or jimmy kimmel in, in particular like is just they're masters of digital and what conan o'brien has done with team coco is amazing uh, so they they just sort of adapt and you consume all of that content differently but it always exists
2: I was talking to someone who worked on one of those shows, and he said, "I think even that YouTube era is is kind of going to be an artifact because it's too long and slow for a TikTok era for you know sixty seconds max, and you're you're swiping through, um, and that stuff almost doesn't really work anymore. It's too slow, which seems crazy uh, to describe a two minute YouTube chunk as being too slow."
4: But, you know, Netflix and Hulu and, you know, streaming services couldn't be more popular. So there's got to be yep. that sort of middle ground. And there's always going to be that entry point. You know, you have these traditional gatekeepers set up, which are now these, you know, networks and streaming services. And so there's got to be some sort of outlet for all of the creators who just want to upload, you know, stand up comedy specials is a perfect example of that, you know, because you're either on Netflix, which is like the, that sort of high watermark for everybody wants to hit and then there's hbo and showtime and comedy central and then comedy central digital and epics was trying to do them at some point and so but now you're seeing comedians like mark norman and joe list and uh, you know distribute their specials uh via youtube
2: it's interesting you said netflix is the high water mark because i think for a long time people would have said hbo is the high watermark that's what you're aspiring to um is it it, it netflix just because you're reaching the biggest audience on netflix
4: exactly yeah i think you're just you're hitting the most people and then just the sheer number of specials that they're doing is um that's where you're getting the most eyeballs probably the most money and um you know hbo is still super cool yeah, but, I saw uh, your
2: Showtime special. I liked it a lot. Shrimp and easy. I oh, learned about thanks, cilantro dude. there.
4: I did not realize there
2: was a <laughs> cilantro uh, conspiracy theory, and you, you educated me. I, I, I recommend it to everyone.
4: Well. That's a that's a good example, actually, of just comedians being resourceful is said, I got, you know, I was on a Showtime show. They gave me an opportunity to shoot and then own my special, which is the big difference. And so now I'm able to put that up on uh, Amazon and uh, then eventually put it up on YouTube myself and control all the audio and control the video from this point forward. So that's actually something I learned from Cheech. And the inspiration for all things comedy was you know Cheech when we were we sat down at um, sort of this iconic uh, LA restaurant and, and um, the Hugo's and in Santa Monica. And he told me, I'm going to give you two rules, he goes. Be nice to everybody you meet. Every busboy, everybody that comes up to you and recognizes you, just be nice to everyone because they're love it. They're gonna love telling their cheech a jerk story. Mm-hmm. And then the second thing is own everything you can. He goes, I directed all those movies. We owned all the music, and every single day, uh, check shows up. And so, uh, you want as much mailboxes, uh, money as you can get kid. So let's, and let's so, talk
2: about business bottles. So right now, generally, if you're going to like, if you do a Netflix, so you explain the, the economics of the Showtime special, which is you were working on a Showtime show when they let you do a, do one and keep it. I'm assuming that's pretty unusual, right? I'm assuming if you do a Netflix show, Netflix wants to own the rights.
4: Yeah, there's a um, the, especially now. I think initially, like I, I believe Netflix does license some content, but to be like a Netflix show with that N, um, you you they own everything, and mm-hmm. so you're you're sort of selling that off. And I'm sure there's early on there they didn't have the audio figured out, but I'm sure they they've figured out ways to control your audio as well, and it's all up for negotiation. So. So uh, yeah. so
2: you've referenced all things comedy a few times. This is a production company podcast network you formed a while ago. Oftentimes you'll hear people talk about forming their own production company and it's usually a vanity project, but this is an actual business for you. So how did it start and, and
4: why are you still doing it? Because a lot of folks started and stop it. I was warned not to do it um, by, I, you know, working in my parents' family business. Um, there was uh, this amazing um, neighbor named Johnny Grace in San Francisco who uh, invented a piece of the. Uh, uh, Yeah. Ultrasound machine, first person gaming. Like he's just genius. Um, I went to his wedding and I was sitting, you know, it's like, I heard him tell all these stories and I was sitting amongst all of these people that he was talking about. So he tells me, he said, um, you know, like, I don't know if this is the right move because you're going to be working your way right back into an office. He goes, you have the perfect job. And he was sort of right. Uh, I am working my way back into an office, but having a fantastic time because all things comedy started with me and Bill Burr ranting to each other in the parking lot of the comedy store in 2010 about the podcasting business and how just simple it was. And it was microphone, audience member, advertiser, and that was it and so we thought we could like united artists start our own distribution network and start with 10 podcasts which we started with we gathered up a collection of our friends really loosey-goosey and then 2012, the business is formed, and, and the United
2: Artists model was right. That's Charlie Chaplin and those guys saying we want to actually own the stuff we make. We want the artists want to put Correct. together the the business, and so we'll own the stuff, not Columbia Pictures or whomever.
4: Well, yeah, and then that ultimately um, was—I think—it became tricky for them because they all wanted to be stars. Still, right. Charlie Chaplin wanted to still be the the superstar. I think comedians are uh, a little bit more realistic. And then podcasting—you know—we we can podcast. We can do anything we want until the end of time. And now we can just self-distribute. But we grow up to the point where we are now, which is we have you know close to. 50 shows and we're the number one comedy podcast network in the world. Um, We took our advertising in-house and then about three years ago took on a little bit of angel money and um, we hired our president and CEO. Uh, who has a branded entertainment background. And um, we are a full-fledged production company. So Netflix is now coming to us to do production services, which is amazing. We have a bunch of cool stuff happening. Um, Comedy Central gave us a big deal. We just actually had the Patrice O'Neill documentary right now. Is um, Killing is Easy uh, is uh, number one on iTunes. Um, and uh, that came out and it's available on the Comedy Central app right now but it aired on Friday night. So wh- what's the pitch to the, the Netflixes of the world?
2: And then what's the pitch to the talent, right? Because like you said, it's pretty easy to set up a podcast right now. Um, why should someone come work with you guys? And then why does someone hire you guys instead of going direct to the artist?
4: So we... I think the the foundation of our company is that we are um so artist friendly to the point where you know we're we're actual artists. So the deals are deals that we would sign. Um, we set aside a portion of the company for the podcasters that participate with us. Um, so we don't want to get rich off their backs and then, you know, we're clinking champagne glasses and like the end of trading places, Mm -hmm. you know, it's like looking good, feeling good. And then somebody's over, you know, Uh, pissed at us. So we're we're trading on our relationships with all these other comedians. We're not doing it lightly. Um, So we are great partners. Um, We are the partners that we wish we had. We we were just matching up with um, showrunners. We're agency agnostic to the point where, um, you know, if I'm at CAA and I'm at Brillstein. and, And if I went out looking for a showrunner on a TV show idea and Uh, They would primarily try to match me up with CAA clients. Your agents and and your managers
2: want, yeah, they they make more money if they can, if they can connect you with their clients.
4: Sure. And it's also they're feeding their clients business. But with all things comedy, you know, Bill is represented at WME and they've been fantastic and he's represented at Three Arts and they've been fantastic. And so we're going out um so if a comedian comes to us with an idea we'd say you know who would be perfect for you is this person i used to think that i was cursed with all of these sitcoms um that i've been on you know i've been on 11 network tv pilots and um you know shows i was on about a boy that went for two years and i was on i'm dying up here that went for two years and i was on but i've met so many amazing people along the way that i'm i'm using a lot of those relationships to help out um you know, our friends. So how much of your day or your week is is running a business versus writing a new sitcom or or acting? I juggle, it was just the the guy who helps me out as my writer's assistant was cracking up the other day because we do so many other things outside of this. And he's like, this is so exciting. Every day is different. And we, I just sort of juggle it all. Um, This morning I am, you know, I was on... Uh, Netflix radio, I'm doing this podcast, and then I'm going to jam to work where I have a deal with HBO um, to make four pilot presentations, which is exciting. So I'm starting that production meeting. And then I jump right into meeting with George Lopez, because we're starting his podcast on March 1st. And then i go and pitch a TV show um, to, with a bunch of creators. That is, were, is, that is, were, is it
2: clear to you when when you're doing uh, all things comedy business versus versus all business?
4: Well, it seems it, like it's it so bleeds funny. together. I had, to stop, I had to stop going all things comedy because That's... I was working there and trying to write and set up in a, our little conference room writers room. And our president would constantly pop in and go. Can I talk to you for a second? No, exciting phone call just happened. You're going to want to hear this. And so so and so just called. uh, This is happening. So we um, it's a lot going on and I just have to sort of stay away.
2: So as you're well aware, there is a uh, a little bit of a podcast M&A frenzy going on mostly from Spotify, but everyone else wants to buy production companies, buy talent. Um, I'm assuming people have knocked on your door and said, We'd yes, like to, to uh, we're buy.
4: actually out sort of looking for investors and uh, either some money right now to sort of grow to this next level. So right now we have about eight employees and we're poised to make a big jump. Uh, the 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 incoming uh, business is is actually it's it's overwhelming and we just need to staff up. So it's a really exciting time. Um, so, yeah, it's um, there's there's people knocking. What about just selling the whole thing? ah you know like if if that thing if that comes up it was just if if you know it, it, it will happen at some point but on on the right terms you know again it's like it's been great because me and bill are doing well outside of the company and don't need to sell it and we're not drawing salaries from it and it's just It's one of those things we keep feeding all the money back into the business anyway. So we've been self-sufficient for a while now and um, just to have everyone sort of happily working and paid. So it it, it comes up great. I just know that when we take, you know, we've taken our advertising in-house and um, we're, we're quietly sort of killing it and um so you don't you don't, you don't, up, you, don't
2: right. you don't you don't pick up a trade and say oh my god wonder is sold for this much what are we doing we should we should turn around and sell this thing tomorrow
4: yeah no well i mean look you can't help but i mean this whole thing was built on a dream like any company and there's all small business owners listening to this podcast and and um they know the the sweat that goes into it. And, the, you know, the upset stomachs and the sleepless nights. I was waking up at 230 in the morning every single night thinking about everything I had to do the next day and freaking out. Um, and so there's a lot of stress and you can't help but imagine like this, you know, end date of of cashing out. And I think. That will happen, but it'll just happen on our terms, just like the whole business is sort of run on our terms. It's well,
2: good um, for you for having a degree of candor with me, because sometimes a will of people are no, <laughs>
4: we don't want to sell. And you're like, no, of
2: course we're going to sell one day. When is the next time someone can see a new project of yours on a screen?
4: There's a there's a Marvel movie, Morbius, that was supposed to go out oh, last yeah, year. Oh, yeah, personally, yeah. I'm super excited about this Patrice O'Neill documentary that we have out, so I highly recommend that. So that's a doc that's out now that we made. Um, as far as my personal stuff, I have... Have map of tiny perfect things which is on amazon right now there's a movie coming out with joel McHale and carrie bish that's like john daly paul Shear, just a ton of people in that and that's coming out in march and then the big marvel movie i spent you know um at did two and a half months in london filming um that's got pushed to january 21st 2022 oh you got a whole, a whole so, other year okay yeah yeah, it was supposed to come out in July. It was, it was supposed to come out July 31st in 2020. And yeah, it's been pushed and pushed and pushed. But um, I got to go see some uh, ADR and footage from that because I was doing, um, you know, voiceover work for it a while ago. And it looks amazing. Is that Directed, I'm assuming that's I d- your
2: biggest scale sort of project you've been on?
4: Well, there was, uh, yeah, in terms of budget, probably uh, I was in Night School with Kevin Hart and Tiffany Haddish. And then I was in um, the Ben Affleck movie, um, The Way Back. Um, Have you seen that? Nope. I have not. Dude, you gotta see it, it's great. All right, all right. You to all right. make your ball, but he um, should win. He'd be nominated for best actor for that movie for sure. And um, anyway, so that is the biggest budget movie I've, I've been in. Um, so excited about All right, well, out.
2: I got a 10 and 12 year old kid, so we will see every Marvel movie. So I will see you on that awesome. screen one way yeah. or another. Yeah. Excited. You're a very busy guy. I appreciate you taking time. And it's been nice to meet you over the, over yeah, the screen. Yeah,
4: Peter, no, um, let's do it again soon.
2: Thanks again to Al Madrigal. Thanks again to Sarah Morrison. Thanks again to Joel and Jelani, who edited and produced this show. And also our sponsors, and also you. We love all you guys. This is Recode Media. We'll see you next week.